welcome to episode 514 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam for this one. Uh, really excited. This is a conversation I had with best-selling author Max Brooks, who you may know from his exceptionally popular zombie novel, World War Z, his recent novel, Devolution, which is a kind of a Sasquatchian uh, murdery book. Really, really fun, really cool stuff. And he also has a second Minecraft book coming out um, very soon that is for younger readers. Or if you're an adult who enjoys Minecraft, which Max very much is, uh, you can enjoy that as well. This is a really fun conversation. We touched on not only his books and his writing and his research process, but also um, Max is very open about his dyslexia that he's had all of his life. So we talked about uh, growing up in a family of storytellers. He is the uh, son of Mel Brooks. Um, and so talking about how his mother, who is also an actress, uh, how she helped him discover the books that uh, he had to read for school and, and beyond and, and audio and by transferring them into audiobooks. It was a really good conversation. And we talk about the importance of teachers and um, just all sorts of really great stuff and uh, talk about survival and really kind of all over the map. It was great. It was a lot of fun. I think you guys will really, really enjoy it. Um, if you haven't read World War Z or Devolution, highly recommend those two. And again, if you are a fan of Minecraft, or if you are looking for a way to get your kids into reading, um, his Minecraft books are a really, really good way to do that. It's a, just fantastic. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can, of course, always reach us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. Uh, you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Thank you to the people who have already sent us messages about the different types of episodes you would like to hear. Uh, we kind of put out a request at the end of last episode saying, hey, let us know what you're interested in. We will happily uh, talk about some things that you guys want to hear from us. So yeah, I think that's just about everything. I'm not going to keep you around any longer before I let you get to uh, the meat and potatoes of this episode. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the one and only Max Brooks on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Um, so actually, I, I always start recording at the beginning, so I don't miss any good bits. So uh, what what I can do is just kind of have you start, uh, kick us off by maybe introducing Devolution to people who aren't familiar with the book. Okay. Uh, well, my name is is Max Brooks, and I wrote a book called Devolution, and uh, it's the opposite of evolution. <laughs> the reason for that Basically, the, the premise is that there is an eco-community nestled in the, the base of the, of the beautiful Cascade Mountains. And when I say an eco-community, I don't mean some filthy granola crunchy hippies. <laughs> I mean that this is the new Levittown. This is the new model for upscale eco-living. Mm-hmm which is all kinds of, <coughs> excuse me, new technologies, solar energy, uh, biogas generation, where literally you flush your poo into a tank and you know it comes out as methane where you mm-hmm. cook your food, a smart, smart homes where you, you can tell each sensor in the house which room you're in so it doesn't heat the rooms you're not in. Uh, just sort of every green tech that we have out now literally under one roof. And the reason for that is, so this one company is presenting a new model where you can live 
with all the comforts of the Upper East Side of Manhattan, but in the beautiful wilderness. Mm -hmm. Because that's how you should save the planet is get to know nature. <laughs> and, uh, and it works and it's great. I mean, these people, these are, these are uh, well-to-do intellectuals, pinnacle of society. They get up every day. They tap on their phone for their drone deliveries from Seattle. They telecommute to work. They, their drone delivery lands with their fresh lunches. And then they go for a nice walk in the woods before dinner. And it's great until Mount Rainier erupts. Yeah, it's, great and, it's great until it's not, right? <laughs> it's great until it's not. And they are suddenly cut off. And these well-educated, well-paid uh, David Sedaris fans don't know how to change a light bulb uh, because these were smart homes. Something breaks, the house sends a signal to the company. The company dispatches a handyman in his driverless electric van. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have to do anything. They just had to do what they did. And they realized not only did they not have to do anything, they can't do anything. Mm -hmm. They can't take care of themselves. And because technically they're outside the blast zone, no one's looking for them. Right. And they're cut off and winter is coming. <laughs> and if that's not bad enough, the, the eruption has also driven a pack of very large, very hungry Sasquatch creatures away from their traditional foraging grounds. And they need to stock up on calories for the winter too. And they come to this eco community, which is essentially a pen of sheep. So if you're going to boil down devolution into a real tagline, it's uh, Ira Glass and Fran Lebowitz versus Bigfoot. I love that. And Fran, Fran's uh, having another moment right now. I think she has a Netflix show that just came out with Martin Scorsese. Perfect. There um, you go. So this is written in as like an epistolary format. It's kind of a, it's a found journal. Um, yeah. And I'm curious, you know, what made you want to use that format and then kind of to jump off that, how does that format let you get creative with sharing descriptions and, and plot twists and stuff? I guess just like, yeah. what does that format do for you as a writer? You know, for me, the story always dictates the format. Mm -hmm. I always think, what's the best way to tell this story? It's like when I wrote uh, my zombie novel, World War Z, I thought, how the hell do I tell the whole story of a planet under siege? Right. So I used the, the oral history format of Studs Terkel from his book, The Good War. I thought that's that's a great way. You do it in a book of interviews with survivors mm -hmm. and then we can get a picture of how big this war was. Likewise, when I uh, wrote Harlem Hellfighters, I didn't want to do it as a novel because it's the true story of African-American soldiers in World War One, and it had to be visual. Right. And I never wanted the, the reader to forget what color these guys were because these guys were never allowed to forget what color they were. Yeah. So it had to be visual, it had to be a comic book. With this one, I wanted there to be mystery at the end of sort of what happened to these people. Mm -hmm. So if I, I didn't want to do oral history, because then you know who survives. Right. So a journal, you sort of get the sense of like, oh, God, what's coming? Mm -hmm. and who survives? But it's a hybrid format because I also pepper it with interviews with people outside the incident, yeah. you know, sort of sort of to give us uh, more context, sort of a, a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. I, I also like something that is interesting, especially with this format of you do it is you can perfectly justify like time jumps of a day, two days, several days, because you can, it's just, it's the next journal entry and it lets you, I feel like it helped. It made for really fun pacing. Like at the beginning of the book, it is kind of exactly what you said. It's like, 
here is how this place works and here's how we're living as a family. But then towards the end when things happen, it is like, okay, you guys have missed a lot since, since the last time you were with me. But because of this format, as a reader, I wasn't like, tell me every single thing that led up to that. Like, I feel like it does let you play with timelines a little bit more as well. Would that be accurate for you as a writer? Yeah, because I don't think, uh, like in the beginning, uh, the, the premise is that she, our, our, our hero, Kate Holland, uh, she's been told to start keeping a journal by her therapist because she can't go in for regular therapy sessions. Right. Uh, but she's not used to journaling. So she kind of skips around sometimes. And so when she's bored, she doesn't really want to write anything down, especially in the beginning. And because in the beginning, I don't want to spend 70 pages uh, describing day-to-day life right. every day. I think it's important just to get a sense of routine. So mm-hmm. I just put that in. Whereas when the action starts to kick in, it goes second by second. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so when people read this, what they'll discover is it feels very and much like the same thing with like world wars like there's a lot of what feels very scientific like you have absolutely a ton of facts about not only the area and volcanoes and things but like yes. you also <laughs> you also have a lot of what could be I, i'm gonna throw up air quotes people will be able to see that it's a podcast but like sasquatch facts and research as well so like what you know, but then also you have your these different characters who also are very nuanced and they're their own people. So, the, what was more challenging for you putting this together? Was it the character research, or was it the research, like the environmental research, or was it the uh, the Sasquatch research? I suppose. Well, all the all the research is challenging for me because I'm very, very, very dyslexic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, reading stuff always has been, and thank God for audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a, a good portion of the research for this had to come from book learning. Mm-hmm. Because when I was going to illustrate my Sasquatch characters, I didn't want to just pull on Sasquatch lore. Yeah, I wanted to create the premise that the this is a real species of great ape mm-hmm. and nothing more, nothing less living in North America. But that involved years of study in climatology. Yeah. So... Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall, and you know, you can't see on a podcast, but right behind me are all these books. <laughs> the Primate Family Tree, Primate Adaptation and Evolution, uh, The Bonobo, The Forgotten Ape. I mean, wow. Yeah. So I had to do a lot of that kind of a research, which is challenging in one way for my dyslexic brain. The other one is talking to actual experts, mm-hmm. which is challenging for me because I'm a natural introvert. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm at my core a very shy, introverted guy who would be very happy just to sit in my room. Obviously, mm-hmm. duh, I write novels. <laughs> but when you grow up as the son of Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, mm-hmm. you are forced to be public. Yeah. So I learned how to be an extrovert, and I'm pretty good at it. You know, I can I can go to Comic Con and I can whip up a whole crowd and have them mm-hmm. all laughing, and and I look like I'm at home. Yeah, and in the, in the moment, I actually am. The difference is when it's over, I'm a balloon with the air taken out of it. Gotcha. Yeah, As opposed sense. to like my dad, who's an extrovert, he'll close down a restaurant. He'll be the last one <laughs> yeah. there. So, I'm, 
I was just gonna say I've heard him. I've I've heard like people who have done who have been done interviews with your dad were like initially his assistants like, "Hey, you've got 15 minutes," and yeah. then like 45 <laughs> minutes later they saw the phone with him. Yeah, I... <laughs> yeah, he gets a recharge from that. His batteries charge from being socially interactive. With me, it's always a stretch because I'm Damn. naturally shy and awkward. So, mm-hmm. I I have to get over that in order to reach out to these like real volcanologists who mm-hmm. set me straight and said like, "No, no, no, the Mount Rainier eruption would not be like that at all." Yeah. But then there's also hands-on because I had to, you know, I'm, I'm always terrified that somebody will say to me, you know, I lived what you write and mm. you don't know what you're talking about. Mm. So I have to live it. So I had to grow the crops that my characters grow in their survival garden to see how long it would take. Yeah. Could you do it? Could you do it indoors? I made the weapons. This is a podcast. You can't see. Oh, man. However, I am holding up the hatchet <laughs> that... One of my characters made from a sobakiri and bamboo and wire with no tools. And oh. I had to see, can you make this without any tools? And yeah. Okay. So for people who are listening, uh, just go on our Twitter or Instagram at ProBookNerds because I were, we have our video here. Yeah. I will, I'll, pay, I'll, I'll clip this part out so everyone can see it. That is, that is wild. That is a dangerous looking piece of yeah. equipment. Now, and for your audience that can listen, Oh my god! That's the sound of Japanese steel. That's a okay. I that is fantastic. Was there when you were doing your research? Was there something whether it was either you know talking to geologists or volcanologists or the you know reading stuff about primates? Was there something? I imagine there was a lot of things, but was there something that like completely struck you as like wow? I had no idea about X, yeah. Y, or Z. Yeah, there were there were a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the eruption. Uh, I initially envisioned it because I had sold this as a movie a long time ago. Right. And I had I had initially written the eruption as just a Mount St. Helens kind of eruption, just sort of an explosion up into the sky, raining ash, blackening out like a nuclear right. winter like Mount St. Helens was. That's not Rainier at all. Rainier is all about the lahars, the 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 liquid boiling mud flows. Mm-hmm. So I had to change everything. I had to download a map of the USGS because now here's the scary part. They've predicted eventually sometime in the future, they don't know when, there will be a rainier eruption, mm-hmm. but they know where, where it's going to go. They know mm-hmm. where the Lahars are going to go. And they've got a whole map of the path of these, you know, these tsunamis of boiling mud. Yeah. And that dictated where I put Green Loop. Mm-hmm. And, but then I had to physically go because one of, one of the key plot points is that they're trapped. Well, why don't they just walk out? Mm-hmm. So I had to go to where my satellite imagery had put the town to see if my characters could just walk out. Yeah. And wow, you can't even walk in. Because <laughs> I had written that it was punishing terrain, but I had to see mm-hmm. for myself, is yeah. it punishing? It's lethal. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a pretty accomplished hiker and camper, but mm-hmm. one mistake and I would have, I could have broken my leg and I, nobody would have come for me. I was out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And one thing I had been told because I, I go up in the Pacific Northwest all the time, but I always go in summer where it's beautiful. Yeah. My friends who live up there say that the weather turns on a dime. Like mm-hmm. one morning you're just going to wake up and suddenly you're going to be encased in ice fog. Yeah. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So now I can write about it all with confidence. I want to take a quick break to talk about today's sponsor, which is our wonderful friends from Literati. Remember how amazing you felt as a kid curling up in the corner to get lost in a good book for hours? You can create magical, imaginative moments like those for your own kids with Literati. 
Literati Kids is a subscription book club that sends five beautiful children's books to your door each and every month, handpicked by experts. Literati Kids has a book club for children ages 0 to 12, and each club has age-appropriate sections tailored to what your child needs. You know, it can be tough sorting through the literal millions of kids' books that are released every year, trying to find rich, engaging stories for your children. And Literati Kids just takes care of literally all of that. Uh, every month, you get a box of five expertly chosen kids' books with themes like mystery, adventure, STEM, history. And there's so much more in there. Um, there's These soul-enriching books are handpicked by leaders in children's education. So you know that not only are the books enjoyable, but they're also going to help your kids learn. In addition to the books, there's also artwork uh, by world-renowned artists, and there's personalized stickers, and there's all sorts of other fun goodies in there. You're not going to get this kind of expert curation anywhere else. And I have to tell you, I've been giving this to my nieces and nephews um, for months and months now, ever since Literati first became a sponsor of our podcast. And the cutest thing I think I've ever seen is a video that my brother sent me of my youngest niece, Eliza. Uh, she now every single month recognizes the Literati box. She's two years old. She recognizes the Literati box and yells books every single time that the box arrives. And she gets to pick and choose her favorite ones. And she reads all of them. And we do a fun FaceTime. My brother shows me all the, the good stuff that's been in each box. So not only is it rewarding to know that lots of other people are enjoying the podcast and getting the fun, the fun, wonderful literati books every single month. It's most rewarding, if I'm being honest, seeing my niece do it. So uh, thank you to all of you who are enjoying those books. And thank you to Literati for providing this wonderful service. If you haven't yet enjoyed this incredible offer from Literati, you're going to want to go to literati.com slash probooknerds for 25% off your first two orders and pick your kids book club today. Remember, no one else has kids book clubs like these. Only at literati.com slash probooknerds can you get 25% off your first two orders and receive five incredible kids books curated by experts delivered to your door every single month. That's literati.com slash probooknerds. Um, you know, you mentioned, and again, like people who are familiar with you are very familiar with who your parents are. And, I, and I'm not going to ask you the question you've been asked <laughs> a billion times. What was it like growing up with those parents? But <laughs> what I have heard you talk about is how you grow up in a home of storytelling. And yeah, I'm curious, like what types of stories do you remember most, you know, most vividly hearing from your parents? And then, you know, I've also heard you talk about how that kind of helps with how you educated yourself and how your, your parents kind of helps. So like what were some of the stories, like the types of stories you remember hearing that kind of stayed with you as a, as a young kid? Well, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky that I had the best mom in the world because, you know, growing up dyslexic in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, you don't want a lot of support mm -hmm. and not a lot of knowledge. Somehow my mother found out because her sister is a school teacher and she had me tested. One of the one of the facts that the test showed up was that I am a, a, an audio learner. Mm -hmm. I learn more from my ears than my eyes. Yeah. Now my mother had already read me stories every night. Mm -hmm. Every night when I was a little kid, she would read me a story. And if she had to go make a movie, she would finish recording the story on an audio set. Yeah. I still have her reading like Phantom Tollbooth and Stuart Little. Uh, so she already knew that, what she could do. So, and she, as, as an actress, she had played Annie Sullivan with Helen Keller. 
which I'm guessing this is probably, <clears throat> this is probably how she knew about the Braille Institute yeah. in Los Angeles uh, for the blind. Well, one of the services the Braille Institute provides is reading books onto audio cassette. Mm -hmm. So she took all high school books every year <clears throat> down to the Braille Institute and had them read onto audio cassette. That's amazing. So I could listen to all those novels. Otherwise I never would have gotten through high school. Mm -hmm. And and it it has helped me to this day. You know, I, I'm I'm in two I'm in two think tanks. One is a, a civilian national security think tank in DC, the Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security through the Atlantic Council. And the other is a straight up military think tank, the Modern War Institute at West Point. Right. Which means I have to read a lot. Yeah. And I have to I have to absorb a lot of information. And the only way I'm able to do that is I've got the audiobook and I have the hardcover. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening to the audiobook, and whenever something's important, I pause and I underline the passage. So yeah. at the end of it, I have a fully underlined copy. That is that's amazing because one of the questions I was going to ask you because like I said, like you know, our service and Audible, like obviously with everything being digitally, it's so much easier now. But this, we are not, you know, Overdrive and Audible, all of us, we are not the creators of audiobooks by far. It, it was, you know, before us, it was on CD. And before that, it was literally books on tape. So, yeah, yeah. but you kind of answered my question with the fact that your mom was <laughs> basically creating audiobooks for you. Like, do you remember the first time you, you know, discovered them kind of outside of the, of that particular situation? Like, because it is, it's such a, a different experience. And I love the way that you make sure your audiobooks are such a different experience from reading the book. Like it's, it's such a wonderful thing. Like, do you remember the first time, you know, listening to an audiobook that maybe wasn't a, a class assigned story? Oh yeah. No, I mean, I've been listening to audiobooks ever since I was a little kid. I mean, I had the records, the little records of let's pretend mm -hmm. the let's pretend stories where they were, uh, where they were acted out. They were, they were radio plays. And my mom got me the actual radio plays of from the 30s of Sherlock Holmes and Flash Gordon. Mm -hmm. And then there was, uh, there was a, I can't remember their company, it was huge. These were full casts. Mm -hmm. uh, Lord of the Rings, yeah. uh, The Hobbit with music, with sound effects. So that was every single night, right up until I graduated high school. As a matter mm -hmm. of fact, when I was casting World War Z, I wanted F. Murray Abraham for one of the parts. Yeah. And they said, no, don't, don't even think about it. F. Murray Abraham, he didn't roll out of bed for anything less than a small fortune. <laughs> so what do I do? So I wrote him a letter and I said, you know, Mr. Abraham, when I was a kid, my mother got me the audiobook of Red Storm Rising, mm -hmm. in which you read all the parts and you did all the accents, you know, English, Russian, Norwegian, you did mm -hmm. everything. You showed me that it could be an art form and I can't offer you a small fortune, but I can offer you the time travel of making this kid's dream come true. Mm -hmm. And so he did it. So I know I always, always, always audiobooks. Yeah. Uh, David Ogden Stiers reading Colleen McCullough's The First Man in Rome. Jesus, I drove across the country to graduate school listening to audiobooks all the way, listening to my mm -hmm. sci-fi greats, Leonard Nimoy, Claudia Christian, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. Will Wheaton. So it's always part of my life. Well, and also exactly what you did is basically how I have been kind of uh, co-running our podcast for all these years. Like you said, you're like, I wrote someone a letter. Literally, the reason I'm talking to you today is because I, I emailed your publisher and I was like, hey, you know who I really like is Max. And it'd be great if I could talk to them. And they were like, I don't know, let me take a look at his schedule, especially now, because it's like, like you said, the one of the 
few, few, few positives of like what's happening now is people are more willing to just hop on a Zoom call. Um, oh, yeah. But, I, you know, I still do that, though. I mean, every yeah. time there's an audio book, I write letters to people. I'm, mm-hmm. I can't I can't be above it. I can't be snooty and be like, you should be like, no, no, no. I'm a, I'm down on my knees. <laughs> every time I do an audio book, I'm like, will you please? Even people I know, the, the Minecraft audio book, mm-hmm. you know, I went to high school with Jack Black. Yeah, that's amazing. But I still had to ask him. Right. I was like, Jack, this is a big, because that's a big ask. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So speaking of that, because I want to get into, I want to get into your Minecraft books because, and I'm going to, let's see if I can do a professional transition here. So audiobooks kind of taught you and they have taught me and they've taught lots of people. There's many ways to approach learning and many, and there's more than one way to re- approach understanding a story. And Minecraft, I feel like at its core is designed to show people that there is no one solution to a problem. So, you know, what is it about you? Like, what is it about Minecraft that you've always enjoyed? And then what made you want to write narrative stories in that world? I, uh, I was approached uh, Mm -hmm. to write the first official Minecraft novel. And I jumped at the chance because my son had started playing it a few years ago and it struck me and I'm not being hyperbolic not exaggerating. I think that it is the greatest single teaching tool since uh, Gutenberg's printing press. Yeah. Because for several hundred years, we have aligned our global society by the Prussian model, the Prussian model of standardization and linear right and wrong Mm -hmm. problem solving and conformity. And you know what? That worked really well because we were in the industrial age. Because that was the industrial revolution was how well could you centralize and streamline and conform? I mean, Henry Ford actually brought people into his factory and and filmed the the most efficient hand movements Mm -hmm. to make products. Well, that filtered into everything. Video games too. I mean, think about the the standard video game is there's a right way and a wrong way to solve a problem, right? Right. Solve it the right way. You get promoted by bumping up to the next level. Mm -hmm. Same thing in it. That's it. That preps your brain for the education model, right way and wrong way on a standardized time test. Boom. The reward is you go to the next grade, right? Then the next one, then the next one, then you graduate college, get a good job for 20 years, win the game. That's how you win the game. Well, that model's over. We're in a post-industrial phase where everybody has to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Everybody has to be agile and flexible. And now there's a million ways to solve problems. And if you're stuck in that road of like, one way, you're dead. You're a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. I mean, ironically, we saw this with our friends over in Japan because I'm a Gen Xer. I'm, I'm 48. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, everybody worshiped Japan because they were the masters of standardization and conformity. Right. Well, now they can't innovate and they're working harder than they've ever worked. This new generation of Japanese kids working harder mm-hmm. than they've ever worked. And they're going nowhere. They call it Japan's lost generation. Mm-hmm. So when I saw Minecraft, I thought, oh my God, this is brain training. Yeah. This is a way to teach kids that there are many ways to solve problems and many ways to do those many ways. Mm-hmm. So I thought when they asked me, do you have a Minecraft novel in mind? I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> so I wrote the first one where as this person is in the Minecraft world, they're learning how to survive like Robinson Crusoe, but they're learning life skills along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this world is teaching this character patience and planning and problem solving and steps, how to recover from failure, uh, just everything 
today's kids have to know. So I was very excited to do that and very excited to write the sequel. Well, and, and it's such a powerful tool, like you said, because not only it's not that it doesn't reward you doing a great thing, but like you can build a castle and that castle can burn down, but building the castle, just like building the castle wasn't the end game. It burning right. down isn't the end of a thing either. It can, like you said, it, it can teach you that there are successes that don't mean you've reached the end, but there also are failures that don't mean you are a failure as long as you right. keep building. <laughs> um, okay. But with it being now two novels set in like the kind of the world of Minecraft where by design there are, it's an open world, it's an endless, there's endless possibilities of ways, not only of what you want to do, but how you want to do it. How do you go building a narrative story? Because by definition, once you've built out a story, there's only one story someone can read that you've written. Um, unless your third one's going to be like a choose your own adventure situation. <laughs> but how do you go, how do you go about writing a narrative in that world? It's, it's very simple. The first, the first story was he just needs to survive. Right. Uh, and very basic. And, and as he's learning to survive, he's learning these life lessons to which the last and final life lesson is that growth does not come from a comfort zone, but from leaving it because mm-hmm. he starts on spawns in the ocean, swims to an Island and fights and claws his way up to basically turn this island into his own little safe space. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, he realizes that in order to keep growing, he has to leave the safe space yeah. and go out into the bigger, wider world, which he does in the second book. And then he discovers another castaway just like him. Mm-hmm. Because book number one is learning how to live with yourself. Mm-hmm. Book number two is how to learn with someone live with someone else, how to learn from each other, how to compromise, how to communicate, how to come together, which, boy, when this pandemic ends, there's going to be a lot of kids that are going to need to relearn those skills. Yeah, it's such a good point. My, um, I have six nieces and nephews. My, my sister has four kids. The oldest one is, is 14. And they're all obviously they've all been home for a long time. And I come from a big family. And so they were able to see a lot of people. But even still, like even with the four of them getting to interact with each other, you know, when my niece goes back to school, she's going to be a freshman in high school at a brand new place. Like, yeah, it, it, I think the situations, the, the, the things that are going to change after all of this, we can't know until any of it happens, but it's, I think it is going to be really interesting to see how people either embrace the things that have happened during the pandemic, like online learning and the different ways that teachers are teaching and using tools like Minecraft. I'm really interested to see, I don't know, do you have any, being, since you are in a couple of think, tank, think tanks, do you have any thoughts on how you think, you know, maybe the education system is going to change after all this? I think it's going to come down to uh, the resources and I think it's going to come down to uh, the tools and the talent. Sure. Because education needs a massive reform. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no question about that. Our education in this country just sucks yeah. and it needs to be completely reformed. The problem is uh, we don't pay our teachers a decent living wage. Mm-hmm. And so that frustrates the really great teachers who got in there to make a difference and they can't because they don't have the resources. But also uh, it doesn't attract other people. Yeah. You know, 
my garbage gets collected every day because my garbage man makes a ton of money and has awesome benefits. And it's a really freaking good job. And as a result, my garbage gets taken away. Yeah. It attracts people who want a decent living, but we're not paying our teachers the kind of wages with the kind of benefits that would attract people mm-hmm. that would say, Hey, I can, I can make a difference in people's lives and I can also have a good life for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's a travesty. I think the teachers are sort of treated like soldiers in this country where we go, thank you for your service, but I don't really want anything to do with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. As a, uh, as the son of a, of a, a mom who taught for 40 years, I feel that in my bones. She, uh, <laughs> she, taught third and fourth graders for most of the four decades that she taught and she's the amount of patience it takes to deal with anywhere from 30 to 60 little little tykes every day well and and it's it's the most important job because i mean i don't care who you are and and i've you know i've been very fortunate in my career to run in various circles all around the world Mm -hmm. various elements of society and i can tell you it doesn't matter who you are and how far you've come in life you never forget your best teacher and you never forget your worst. Absolutely. You can go to anybody. You know, I could go to Bill Gates or Colin Powell or, you know, Pink. And I could say best teacher, worst teacher. And bam, they remember. They remember the names. They remember the moments. Mm-hmm. Never forget. Yeah. I mean, the guy who basically turned Malcolm X into a domestic terrorist when he was young was not some like redneck KKK, you know, clan leader. Mm-hmm. It was his teacher. Yeah. His teacher who who said to him, no, you can't, you're never going to be a lawyer. Yeah. You're never, because you're black. You should just be a carpenter. Mm-hmm. And Malcolm X wrote about that. He was like, oh, you just shut the door on me yeah. to the house that is America. I'm going to burn that house down. Yeah. It's Thanks, incredible. Teacher. It's incredible that you say that because as soon as you said, like, everyone can think of their best and worst. you like, Best teacher, her name is Mrs. Mahoney. Nan, she's wonderful. I don't know if she's listening. I'm gonna omit the last, the 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 worst teacher one, just to just to be polite. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, it they pop in your head because you you can like those memories. You know, we were talking about storytelling in the house, like it, those memories of classes that really like affected you and moved you. You remember that. I mean, it doesn't matter how old you are. You remember those experiences because they made you want to be whatever. Or like you said, from a negative standpoint, they made you not want to be X, Y, or Z, depending on what they're what they're telling you oh the 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 power that teachers have is insane and the mm-hmm. fact that we don't treat it that we we treat the tsa with more respect than we mm-hmm. do our teachers because let's be honest thank god for the good teachers because mm-hmm. they i was so lucky to have some good ones mm-hmm. i think i had some really bad ones by the way some really and i went <laughs> to private like good private schools mm-hmm. and i had some horrible teachers who thought i was just lazy or I acted up in class because I was the child of celebrities. They didn't believe it was because I had dyslexia. Yeah. But I also had some amazing ones. I mean, my God, we had story time in sixth grade. The whole class had put us around. We're yeah. talking about telling stories. And they read to us the Iliad. Yeah. And then they would talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I still remember my teacher. Her name was Helene. And she was talking about uh, Hector and Achilles fighting and Hector being like, well, let's respect each other. And Achilles is like, no, no, I am going to totally drag your body around Troy after I kill you. Right. <laughs> um, so speaking of, of your dyslexia, I'm curious because we talk to a ton of writers and one of the things we always talk about is 
anyone can write, but to be an author, it really is. It's the editing. It's the going back. It's the, you know, sharpening the stories that you're writing. And even though there are, they're your own words with dyslexia, how is editing a challenging process for you? I know that you can't compare it to not having dyslexia because you have always had it, but is it challenging to go back and, and be focused on the story that you need to clean up or change or any of those things? Well, I'm, I'm very lucky I had a good teacher. <clears throat> My teacher's name was Alan Aldo, and you might've heard of him. He was on yeah. a show called MASH. Yeah, I think family. I've heard of it, yeah. yeah. Very good family friend of ours. And uh, I was a huge fan when I was like 14. And I asked if he would read some of my stories and give me notes. Now, Alan, uh, because he wasn't my dad, was not emotionally responsible for me. (laughs) He was rough. He was freaking Yoda. Mm -hmm. And he, he tore into me. And he taught me some amazing rules. And he used to say, anybody can write. Mm -hmm. But it is a, a real professional writer rewrites that's where the profession comes in that's that's where the real hard work after the inspiration's over after fun time first draft is over sitting down for draft two through 17 that is when you are a writer yeah that's amazing um okay last question for you what do you hope readers take away from reading your books whether they're young adult children or you know adults reading you know your your stuff for them like what do you hope people kind of take away from these books you know i i hope i hope i can educate through entertainment because that was sort of my thing you know being dyslexic i um i was so hungry to learn i was so curious and school the door of school kept smashing me in the nose and so i had to find my education uh wherever, wherever it was, wherever it it showed itself. And so for me, the authors that I loved were the authors that educated me as well as entertained me. The first book I ever bought my own money and sat down and read was Hunt for Red October. And I, and, and I learned, oh my God, this is how submarines work. This is how the CIA works. This is how geopolitics works. Uh, Reading Colleen McCullough's books about the masters of Rome. I keep coming back to him right now because we've seen with, with, you know, Trump's attempted coup. Mm-hmm. I've seen that before. Right. I saw that in Colleen McCullough's The Grass Crown, the fall of the Roman Republic, where mobs were used as political weapons to storm mm-hmm. the Senate House yeah. and beat and kill the senators who were on the opposite side. I would not have known this. Yeah. If as a kid, I hadn't read or listened to, let's be honest, mm-hmm. Colleen McCullough's books. Wow. So, I mean, I don't know if I, if I do that job. I mean, you as, you as the reader and, and other readers will have to judge me. Yeah. But what I'd like to do with my career is impart a little bit of knowledge mm-hmm. and hopefully take people on a fun ride. Well, I can, I can tell you unequivocally that a book that, you know, on its face, people will think it's about uh, Bigfoot murdering a bunch of people. I can tell you there is lots of education there. I learned much more than I thought I was going to, and it is wonderful. Max, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Take care. 
Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.